welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Novik Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Takei, and this is the interview and insights segment. So, esports and esports leagues. It's the top thing every single one of my Goldman Sachs or private equity friends approaches me about. What do you think about esports? They'll say. And it's usually first from a point of like utter fascination that it exists, and B, this misconception that esports is an incredibly lucrative business. The other day, my real estate professor told me that his golf buddy asked him to invest in this thing called Team Envy. He was like, So you know games, and what is this Team Envy, and should I do it? And so beyond that being a little bit of a boomer giveaway, it's honestly a good question. Um, I've had some longstanding personal opinions on the esports business, its margins, its PLs, and the overall purpose in the games business, especially given my experience on the Overwatch League. And so today we're going to be talking about one of these leagues, albeit it's not a city-based league, and how to bring esports organizations to positive net income and what responsibility esports has in shaping a healthy gaming community. And so to do so, I'm incredibly honored to have on Nicole LaPointe-Jameson, the CEO of Evil's Geniuses, an esports organization that actually has its roots back in the 1990s as a clan in Canada. And so today it's a group with over 14 million followers across the globes with partners like Ultra Gear, Peak Six, Chevron, and Secret Lab. It probably has one of the most diverse creator collectives I've ever seen, around like 50% female with a surprising number of minority groups represented. Um, you know, I hate to say that that's a surprise, but it is. Um, and holds franchising across games like Valorant, CSGO, and Call of Duty. And so I'm super excited to chat and welcome to the pod, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's exciting to be here and hopefully uh, share some of the hard truths, but change your mind on some of the not truths of our space. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yes, I'm definitely of the. Um, I'm in the. I'm in the skeptic. I'm in the skeptic category. You so know I might, what? Though? I might need some I'm convincing. in the skeptic camp too. But the good <laughs> news is there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of opportunity to still be uncovered and developed. So don't right. worry. We'll right. get into it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I've given EG a little bit of a standing ovation in the intro, but I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about your background and how you came to run EG. Yeah. Um, so I guess at face value, a quick Google will show you, I worked in investing for a PE firm, um, which is kind of the boring answer of how I came to EG. So I, I bear with me editorializing. But I'm going to go back like 15 years um, to a little girl named Nicole in Connecticut who actually was born without fully formed Achilles tendons. So I was in walking therapy, wheelchairs, surgery, the whole gambit until about middle school, um, until I had bilateral Achilles tendon extensions. And I swear this strange tangent is relevant because unlike other little kids that made friends through team sports or gym class or recess, I was the kid who had to try to convince other kids to play board games with them in the nurse's office. And that love of gaming as the only way I could socialize and engage with my peers, like truly was like the impetus for something that became a personal passion throughout my entire life. Um, 
Now you jump ahead 20 years. Um, I'm working for an investment firm focused predominantly on distressed asset turnarounds, which is just like the unsexiest of the unsexy things that need a <laughs> lot of help, as well as managing very excited early on in my investment career, managing my own portfolio in tech AR VR, as that was what was really exciting at this business stage and where we invested at this time. And then soon enough, this esports organization came to us, not EG, but one of our current competitors. And I remember looking at it and going, this makes no fucking sense. <laughs> like, like, what is this? But to be fair, never venture, right? We, we are not investing in the flyers. We're investing in areas that we saw opportunity to actually add value, optimize, and grow. Um, and usually longer haul investors, um, peak six investments run by Matt and Jenny have a lot of background in sports, a lot of background in financial services, and they tend to hold more evergreen investments. So esports didn't make sense. But once you're on the radar of here's people that look at esports, oh my God, the floodgates opened. Mm. More and more teams, more and more teams were like, this doesn't make sense, doesn't make sense, doesn't make sense for us. And then um, right as rain, a little business called Evil Geniuses came to us and it looked very different from the rest of the esports teams we looked at. Um, they had no CEO. They had no leadership at all, actually. It was six dudes who were all kind of frat brother friends from University of Washington who essentially came and were like, listen, this is a brand that has existed for over 20 years and is beloved and deserves to continue to survive. Because if you think about the tech changes, the accessibility, the, the connotations of gaming, for one brand to survive for 20 years, the passion of that community is valuable. Um, but we also haven't paid payroll in two years. We're kind of <laughs> squatting in a facility in Redmond, Washington, and we just have a Dota team and everyone's grumpy. And not to sound totally lame, but that's when your distressed asset turnaround brand goes, That's right. Ah, this maybe makes more sense to yes. me. Because yes. all the like boring <laughs> back-end business, I'm going to come in, I love the space, right? I've actually, I'd been a fan of one of the EG fighting games players, Hello Kitty Ricky, for some time. So I knew the brand, loved gaming. I'm like, I can add value. All the crappy back-end stuff, throw me in there. Um, and what turned in, what started as, let's come in, let's stabilize and build. Now coming on my four year, we've, we've, massively grown and not just stabilized, but we've diversified the teams that we're in. We're now now no longer just in Dota. We're in League of Legends, Valorant, Counter-Strike, fighting games, kind of the breadth of the community. And we've also grown from just having really Dota fans to a whole new profile of fandom and community, which includes women, which includes LGBTQ individuals, which includes people of color, which did not exist in the EG community at this volume and this vocal majority before. And that makes me proud because the struggle with esports organizations today and where we're looking to keep going forward is that are we sports? Are we entertainment? And how do we monetize and support and scale that tension where that even the flow of the dollars looks different? Um, and how do we continue to survive and grow for another 20 years and continue to be excellent at the titles we do? So. Short yeah, story that's, is that's EG. <laughs> that's all. That's awesome. And I mean, I think that's a, a huge conflict is, is it entertainment or is it sports? Right. And I think when you look at some of the business models, which we'll talk about a bit later, I think that identity crisis is the impetus for a lot of the choices around business models. Um, and so before we jump there, right, I know that, you know, cause we've, we've talked before, but I wanted you to explain a little bit more about the pillars of business and the mission of EG. We talked a little about its history. It's how it originated as six dudes who were like a brand. They were playing Dota, but no one's getting payroll, right? Um, 
But now it's more evolved into this, into not only an esports organization that sponsors um, teams across a variety of PvP titles, um, but it also has a sort of like triple bottom line impact as well. And so can you share a little bit more about what is the mission of the organization in addition to its uh, profitability enterprise? Yes. So the current mission of EG really evolved after I'd come in true sponge mode, just focus on fix, stabilize, but then realize it's not enough when we don't have the privilege, like many traditional sports teams do, of I live in Seattle. Like, why am I a Seahawks and a Kraken fan? Because I live in Seattle. Do I actually watch the Seahawks, the Kraken? Not really, but I know the brand, right? That geo affiliation, that hometown team love exists. It doesn't exist in esports where the the platforms that we compete in are digital and we love the global pie. I love that we have fans in China, fans in Ohio and fans in Seattle. Um, And so how do we create a brand why that excites people to be fans of more than just the players or the titles that we're in that are more loyal and thus spend money. And so realizing we had to not just create a brand purpose that trickled to our operations, but then really what, what sparked this particular thesis we've owned and run with was um, when we were looking at expanding some of our titles and changing players coming from not the esports space, I assumed it operated more like sports. Give me the reports. Tell me what the scouts say. Let's figure it out. And I was told pretty quickly, no, 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 no. You ask the players who they want to play with, and that's who's on the team. And so being devil's advocate, as you'll all pick up really quickly, devil's advocate, pragmatic Nicole, I was like, there's no way that is the most logical way that we should be approaching talent development because it becomes incestuous. And it was incestuous. Mm -hmm. And especially for EG, where we received a League of Legends franchise slot, um, essentially entered a new title in an off-season period. So we had a very quick time to get talent. Having no floor of no coach to ask or players to be like, who do you want to play with? Posed a huge fundamental problem of how this space grows and matures. And so knowing what I know best, what's scalable, what's operationable, leverage data. Just like every traditional sports team that's not a digital platform, I saw opportunity for us to leverage data. And what's interesting is when you're more empirical with your approach to scouting and development, you not only can be more thoughtful around spend and how you engage competitively, but also really interesting subsets of that found that the more empirical, wide net, open-minded we were, the more diverse talent came from in-game to boardroom at EG. Mm. We were able to front our first mixed-gender roster um, in a first-person shooter title, Valorant, by scouting empirically. We were able to find a 15-year-old Fortnite player and identify that he was going to be the next superstar League of Legends um, ADC, Jojo Pion, who still is today. Um, We were able to really do a lot of interesting firsts through that empirical and experimental mindset. And really what I would say our mission has been not just use data, which is kind of a lame mission, but we need to think with inclusion. So we believe you can't sacrifice competitive, cultural, and commercial success in all that we do. And so leading with the why and the intent of cast a wide net and the best of the best, no matter where they are or where they come from, can have a home here, is the grounding principle of everything we do at EG. Yeah, that's honestly pretty epic. And I think that that's just such an interesting dynamic that it happens in esports too. I mean, this is like basically that 
bringing that level of meritocracy to esports, right? And being like, oh, like I'm only going to play with my friends um, and who wants to be on the team? Oh, it's a guy that I played with before. I think that also is basically part of the flywheel and the and the cycle yes. of why there's also a lot of like gender imbalance in esports mm-hmm. and toxicity in esports as well. And so we're going to talk about that later on. But um, for sure, I, really I want to nerd out on your paper <laughs> that I read where it was exactly this, right? Players right. like, I don't want to play with a girl because they're not good. But right, when you poke, right. and like, why do you think And you look that? at the data, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you start to realize that there's really yes. not a lot of difference between performance between male and females, et cetera. Um, but we're going to get into that topic a little bit later. Um, but first, want to talk a little bit about the, the, the business model and the profitability of esports. Um, so this might be a very dumb question, but... Even I find myself to be this incredibly convoluted because of the Overwatch League was done so much differently than some of the franchise leagues. Um, who owns your esports teams? That is, it's not a dumb question because it is <laughs> it is confusing. So let me break it down. And if I am way too pedantic or juvenile, this just shut me up. So we operate. Think of us like a university's athletics department. So I went to Columbia. Pretend Columbia is good at sports. Um, so instead of our football team and our basketball team. I didn't team, choose to row for Columbia. I rode for Penn. Oh, so, well, that was like um, the one we're thing. We're going to NCAAs, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll use our better sports. Pretend we're like, we have fencing, we have rowing, you know, yeah, <laughs> cricket. They, I don't go. know. Um, but instead of those titles, Counter-Strike, uh, Valorant, the nuance with that is we have to be prepared to operate all of those with distinct players, distinct seasons, distinct fan bases. But what's also uniquely distinct with esports is the game is owned by a company. Basketball mm-hmm. isn't owned by a company. So that also means the rules of basketball tend to not change that much. It is easy to understand and believe in the tenure and stickiness of basketball, but I'll use Fortnite as an example, a title. If you look at EG's history, we've come, came and went so many times because Fortnite used to play in quads. Then you played with trios. Then it became an individual sport. And so it's very hard for us that treat our operations like true athletics. We, bo- we drink our own Kool-Aid and we believe in the nature of the sport. To have a very unstable floor is hard to participate in. Mm. Then you also make a more complicated constituent matrix where now for Valorant and League, Riot, the game developer, is a partner. Or in Counter-Strike, Valve is a partner, but also the people that operate the tournaments are a partner. And so the flow of dollars is actually not as streamlined as Mm. it is in traditional sports. And organizations like esports can't, it's not sufficient to usually just be in one game title because the sum of the parts creates bigger holes for how we monetize versus just one title, like just having a basketball team. And so it's, that's why you look at, when you look at different esports organizations, they manifest their brand, but also how they monetize through merchandise, through content, through lifting trophies differently, because there is no one playbook for how this makes sense today. And it will require years of investment and intentionality to figure out what continues to have stability. I, you know, one of my board members, he's from Chicago. He always likes to make a joke. He loves what he loves this business, not because we make oodles of dollars today, which we don't, right? He loves it because he goes, I bought the Cubs 10 years before they're the Cubs. And he understands this is a 10 year slog as we figure out what does name image likeness look like? What does IP ownership look like? 
What does media rights look like when you're digital? There's a lot of open-ended questions that the good news is there's very brilliant people trying to figure out and solve and push forward, but it is not a, this isn't a venture, let's have great dividends in two years fix Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Right. Right. And so, okay, so right now, you don't have specific individual team owners in the same way that the Cubs are owned by a specific individual. So we we do have investors and EG, okay. uh, the word owns is gross. Like we are the employer and the rights holder to our athletes and sure. our creators, which is different. We look more like music in that way than traditional okay. sports. Um, and we run as a business owned by predominantly Peak Six Investments. But... Um, it's the games that we play on, we do not own. Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And I think a lot of this is really paralleling a lot of like where my mind goes from the Overwatch League. It's very distinctly different from EG. And for those in the audience who, didn't, who don't know how the Overwatch League was built, but the Overwatch League was built on a geographical model. So exactly trying to tap into this like zeal that, oh, if I were a fan of uh, a team in Dallas, I would also be a, a fan of a team in Dallas if it were an Overwatch team as well. Um, And then we actually sold the teams um, to individual owners, much like in a very similar sports league. So this is a very distinctly different um, model. Um, And that obviously has implications on the business model, et cetera. And so I kind of like want to dive into though, like you basically came from an investing background and we talked about business models, but I remember from my experience that esports, at least the way that we did the Overwatch League was a very fixed capital intensive business, um, incredibly reliant on semi-permanent revenue streams like partnerships and team sales. And as they say in private equity, it's all about cash flows, cash flow, cash flow, specifically levered cash flow. Um, and you were recruited from the world of investing to bring a lot of financial discipline to EG. And so I would love for you to tell me about what is the first thing that you changed when you became CEO of EG? Well, the actual first thing, which is totally ridiculous, is I had to change all of our plumbing and hire a plumber because no woman (laughs) had ever used our office bathrooms. Um, So that was my actual first business expense, which was ridiculous. But I would say to answer your question um, non-cheekily, besides the recruiting and scouting, I saw immediately the understanding and building the empathy of, especially in EG's case, 20 plus years of, we do this because we love it. Everything else be damned. But they were in a spot where like, that wouldn't work anymore. The, the business would go under. They, like, and even the word of this is a business was a cultural shift. And mm. creating that vocabulary of, we love our players. We respect them. We treat them as humans. But people make money in sports through trading of players. We must think similarly. We must think similarly in an agility sense, in a volatility management sense. And a lot of those concepts of how do we need to value and spend against the things that matter, that was a a cultural shift that was really, it was almost like a house divided because Mm. that also posed, and I have deep empathy, right? People were here because they cared for it, not because they wanted to make money, not because they really understood that if you, you know, can't play, pay players, you're not going to get the best players. Um, and they didn't see those problems. And just creating that awareness took a while. And if you, you know, e.g. in the time since 2019, where I had come on, not only has grown in volume of people, but the demographics of who 
worked for EG have changed significantly. And I don't just mean by gender or creed. Uh, at the time, it was people who had either, it was their first job ever working in the space, or they'd only worked in esports. Now, we have people who have grown up in esports, mostly from our um, internship program that matriculate in, but we bring people from traditional sports, from traditional media, from Fortune 500 companies, from consumer product bands, like getting different experience of what business models make sense and best mm -hmm. business practices was a huge, huge focus. So then I also changed how we recruited people. Um, because if, if I was just going to the same 30 staff in the space, either new ideas would not be coming in. And that doesn't mean we always got it right or did the best thing, but we always did the best that we, with the information we had at that time and tried to stay very nimble in our approach. Got it. So you've burgeoned the pipeline of the people that come in mm -hmm. uh, mostly to uh, be the impetus for new business model ideas, et cetera, from different industries. Um, and, you know, John Needham, actually the Riot's yeah. Game um, president of esports, um, published an article the other day called Building the Future of Sport at Riot Games, um, which talked a lot about like digital goodies um, and changing, shifting away from the traditional broadcast and media models, yes. which also from my experience ha hasn't really worked that well. Um, and so he's personally kind of put, a, put together this aberration of like, this is why this is the business model that we're going to go with and this is why it will work. Um, but it kind of, in my opinion, I think it really mostly bolstered my conviction in the LCS, not really in esports as a whole because of the power of League. As someone who built the, the pacing and forecasting models for the Overwatch League MTX system, um, digital goodies is a game works, but not necessarily across all games. And so what is the business model now for EG? And does it kind of speak to a lot of the points that Needham had kind of written about in his article um, for the LCS? Yes. And I have to say, not shameless, shameless plug. What Riot is doing to be thoughtful and take in the feedback of we have to commercialize differently is exactly what you said. The, the media rights and the hopes that linear distribution, like traditional TV, yep. would buy this and understand how to integrate it and then we'd make money from it. That hasn't panned out. So we have to try something different until it does. Because this whole space was kind of built as a reverse triangle. And to, so how EG's monetization comes in is the, the top part of the triangle or the pyramid is huge. Awareness. Like this is mm -hmm. the thing for people under the age of 35. It is the next movement of pop culture in terms of participation, um, inclusion, and how especially Gen Z, Gen Alpha just view gaming like music, like fashion. Um, and you see that in the stats, right? Wasn't League, um, from an average minute audience perspective, like the third most popular team sport for people under the age of 25? Like there's huge markers of continued excitement, engagement, and the creation of multi-generational awareness. But then it's like, how do you build trust and engagement at a deeper level that leads to monetization? That part of the pyramid is being figured out. And so how we have manifested that um, is in kind of two key ways with a little bit of opportunistic upside on either end. The first is revenue derived from our athletics itself. Some of that is league revenue that comes from what games we participate in, either minimum guarantees, upsides for viewership, upsides for other metrics, anything you would see like in traditional sports, where hopefully media rights and these things that Riot is doing, and John mentioned, those revenue pass through to us as well. And that helps us support the funding of those teams. Mm -hmm. Prize pool, I feel like, is the, the beautiful red herring of this space. Everyone loves to talk about amazing prize pool. EG in particular has made over $30 million in prize pool. 
But most of that goes down to players because that is the give get when we own rights NIL, the competitive upside has gone historically to the athletes. Um, And that always shifts. There's always some upside there, especially as prize pools and more global events are increasing again. But um, that's not usually a a monetization stream we bank on or plan Mm -hmm. for. Um, And then, of course, the the not surprising uh, pillar is sponsorship. Sponsorship, I'll I'll asterisk because if I talk to sports people about sponsorship, they're like, yep, sports sponsorship. And if I talk to marketers about sponsorship, they're like, that's just advertising. Because we live in that in-between of, well, what are we sponsoring and what are we selling? And some of it looks like, um, like you see with our LG partner, they are the presenting partner of a team. They're integrated in this equipment we use. They're on the jersey. And then you see some of our partners, like um, the work we did with Toomey, where we co-developed mm. an esports travel bag and we sold Ooh. the bag. So the bespokeness the of... Yeah, oh, it's, it's actually great. <laughs> I would buy the bag. Okay. It has a little slot for your headset and your keyboard Things that some of the listeners might go, what in the world? But if you have a couple hundred dollar keyboard and you travel 200 days of the year, like our athletes, you care about that nice travel bag. Um, So because we have more flexibility and you add all this with the fact that we are really good at engaging youth culture Mm -hmm. um, in a way that many traditional brands can't very well. Um, So that advertising, that brand affinity, that fandom reach, that consumer conversion tends to be how sponsorships also manifest. But as you mentioned, it's it's frothy. Um, It is semi-permanent, I think was the word you used. I I don't (laughs) know if I love or hate. (laughs) But um, so always trying to figure out those additional ways to create more permanent revenue streams um, is is the name of the game. But that takes time. Um, Definitely. So... Yep. Got it. I mean, so it sounds like, okay, so, and I actually want to dive in. I'm glad that you mentioned the the the, the sort of, the, there's a sponsorships part, and then there's also the kind of the revenue share and the MG part, um, which is a very similar structure. And in Needham's article, he talked about um, detailing, like lowering the entry fees to basically like be a franchise team for Valorant or be a franchise team for, for League. So I think, you know, like there's actually like almost like this like weird trade where you as a league have to pay in to potentially be considered mm-hmm. to be part of the franchise league. So my question to you is, what do you think should be happening on the game developer side? Like you said, you don't, basketball is free to the universe, but league is not, it's owned by a company. What do you think that the game developer side, like a Riot or a Blizzard or um, Valve should be doing to make the team entry more egalitarian and make that revenue share a little bit um, better? Because I think, the problem, at least for the Overwatch League, was that once you started splitting it amongst the parties, you started splitting it amongst the game team that was making all the tech to run the Overwatch League, the cameras, the shots, and the, and the skins themselves, then you had the team owners, then you had the players themselves, then you had like mm-hmm. Blizzard, and once you basically started splitting this money up, there wasn't enough to go around. So just kind of walk me through how you're thinking about, about that. It's an interesting one, and what I think... I have good opposite examples of what I see today of the more egalitarian, the less valuable a slot is, right? And so mm. a good example of someone that operates this way is Valve. Valve truly believes five friends can get together in their garage and make it all the way to land. And something about that is beautiful in terms of accessibility. You see that manifest in the tournaments where there's a lot of play-ins, but also that means the value of that game and how much a team really wants to spend on investing and thus tenure of brands and stickiness if it becomes a one-off, I'm going to do this for a year with my friends because it's fun versus this is a viable career path for me 
gets challenged. That also means then the subsidiary revenue streams like sponsorship based on brand recognition go away. And so does that, does egalitarianism or democratization of access come at the detriment of long-term stability of the title from a competitive scene where then you flip it to like Valorant or League of Legends with Riot, controls number of franchise, operates like the NHL or the W. And then you think about strategic expansion opportunities that have the right partner come into play where you're not then a free-for-all, everyone can participate, but you have a more controlled narrative, um, limited number and thus scarcity value of a mm. position that then also makes sponsors and other third parties more confident in their sponsorship investment partnership add value. Um, you see kind of that tension in some scenes like fighting games, which is a free for all. Nintendo uh, doesn't really touch the esports universe that well. Um, Activision Blizzard did a lot with this. And I think the, the, to answer the question more succinctly, what developers need to do is also realize it, this is where knowledge of running a sport is really critical. And I love mm -hmm. that everyone's kind of exploratory, but I, what I would really echo is the Valorant partnership in franchising, which is the newest kind of game that's come out that's had limited slots, was done probably with the best hand-in-hand -hand balance of the like a traditional sport franchise application, you had to go into due diligence and really explain the why and the what, why you're a valid partner. There was no fee to enter, which was great. So it created opportunity. The rumor mill has it that over 250 people or groups applied for sure. just the North American Valorant slots, um, which is amazing in terms of demand. But then they get to pick and find the right partners who understand the game, understand the passion, and are validated long-term partners. But what's the winning method? None of them win yet. And it's not necessarily because none of them win because the structure is bad. The problem is the cost of talent far outsizes the revenue right. received from gaming today. Um, yeah. And like far outsizes as in some teams pay 12x what their minimum guarantees are just for their roster. And that's what makes it unsustainable mm. versus is the structure really the problem? It might just be a spend diligence problem and discipline right. problem. Yeah. And then I guess in that, yeah, that's actually one of the questions, like what, what revenues got to go up, what costs have to come down when you're like looking at the PNL and, um, how, how do you incentivize like your players though to come play for EG if they might get paid more playing, um, for TSM or, or team right. liquid? This is a tough, tough challenge because, of course, you have the players as a constituent here that you have to manage. And that's just like in any business, right? If, you have a, if you're a regular uh, hardware company and you have an internship program, you know your interns are going to look at other things before just accepting yours. And it's mm -hmm. sometimes the pay, sometimes it's other things that you offer, um, as well as the culture and the quality. Like all the soft and hard assets you give to any talent um, matter. And EG, we are very upfront and transparent about this. I think our players know and the agents know when they work with us, like we're going to deliver what we say and we're going to be really tight and narrow and specific on it. Um, but it's not for everybody. Um, it leans into a lot of our data usage and thesis too, because I both don't want to as well as likely can't afford the $10 million shiny star because I'm not going to make $10 million in that title. 
So to find the up and comer, give a chance to a rookie and develop different storylines and competitive advantages through how we operationalize. That's, it's a long haul exercise, but we're getting amazing headwinds then there, which mm. help us create edge. And that's unique to us. Um, and so that managing that spend is important. What I'd say though, too, is an interesting constitu- allowed constituent in this area that's not the players is actually the fans. Because subconsciously, I don't know if the community really realizes esports has been generally pay to win. If you've bought the most expensive players, because again, think about that incestuous, like the best of the best asks for the best of the best. Mm-hmm. They collectively bargain for the best of the best. Um, and so when you break that mold, fancy, cheap, or unknown, and they're like, EG gave up on their roster. It's not ever usually that. Everyone's here to win. Um, Everyone's here to do something Mm. right. But how do you make the most of what you have? And then how do you actually develop athletes? More like an arsenal model versus like, do you have to buy and hope the culture cohesion works? We're also a couple steps ahead there and figuring that out as we go. Got it. I love. I actually love this. This is basically okay. So this is like Moneyball. You're playing the Moneyball strategy. Uh, You're using I hope data so. to find. It's like not. We're the- not in the making it mass popular <laughs> stage right now because I think sure, people think the popularity. We're, but- we're truly, I think, evil geniuses. And like, if you ask people on the street, like, what do you think of EG? They're like, mm-hmm. oh my god, doing this great thing. Or like, they're yeah. fucking crazy. Yeah. But someone has to try something different because what everyone that what mass populace is doing in esports doesn't work. Right. So right. Interesting. Yeah, I think that that's just, it's so true. A player like Faker or whatever is going to cost mm. millions of dollars, right? And yes. obviously it would bring oh a ton of eyeballs to your, to your group, but right. then you're probably, you're, you, like you said, you're paying 12x the, M, the, the, the MG that you're receiving on the other side. And so this is just a completely right. lopsided business. It's it fascinating. Um, before we shift actually to the building esports community and speaking to the part about like how you acquire a talent or labor, I was wondering if you could briefly comment on what you think the role of the streaming platforms is, such as YouTube and Twitch. Um, a lot of the time that I spent on the partnerships team was trying to sell some of the media rights mm. to Twitch and YouTube. Yep. Do you guys have that relationship where there's almost like, there's like a million parties and there's chefs in this kitchen, there's a developer, there's you guys, the teams, the fans, the other leagues that also play. And then there's obviously like the the the, the, the viewers, Um, sorry, the streaming platforms. Yep. How does that work with yes. you guys and Twitch and YouTube? So you, especially if you were selling on the media rights there, you know, we got a, we got capitalist. Yes. <laughs> Twitch, yeah. Well, we have YouTube, nowhere to go. So right. basically, Twitch and YouTube uh, realized they own the thing. <laughs> so why pay people? And I'm like, <laughs> I respect that, but it sucks. <laughs> yeah, I do respect. <laughs> I know. And the non like really ridiculous answer. Like, I that's why I wish. And what's interesting, I feel like we're arm in arm with um, women's sports in the U.S. right now. Of mm. people watch this, you have to care about it. Who's gonna pay to get this fandom loyalty? Is it Roku? Is it YouTube? Is it ESPN2? There's some challenges. As a funny anecdote, actually ESPN2 hosted League of Legends, I want to say Summer Finals once, but they um, ran their ads during pick ban, right? Like that how you convert <laughs> how you convert a digital stream experience that has different cadence than linear TV requires some finesse. So people are like, what's happening? And everyone was grumpy. But I think there's definitely some learning. But it would be remiss to not realize this is where like the future of consumers lives and engages and every brand, all the savvy ones are aware of this and are showing up. 
and media rights, especially for these streaming services, hungry for content. Um, I mean, I even think I watched Counter-Strike on a Delta flight recently. Like there was some ESEA tournaments on. I'm like, whoa, like people are looking for content and are continuously being more open-minded around, okay, yeah, gaming is content. Gaming has eyes and hoping people will continue to spend in that media rights. But the, the challenge is, as an individual team, you can only do so much. The mm-hmm. leagues, the developers have to be open-minded. And what I think is an interesting turn is Blast, a Counter-Strike and um, I think Apex Legends tournament operator actually started Blast TV, their own media rights and distribution platform where it has integration with real money betting partners and other ways for fan monetization. And I'm, I'm curious to see for the developers that have development resources, if Twitch and YouTube aren't paying, wonder will that will continue to grow and, and go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing your comments. It's just such a total duopoly. Yes. Um, and so it's just so difficult to actually like have any kind of negotiating leverage. And I would suspect it's probably even worse from the league side, if even if it's um if it's that way for the game developer. Um so so our fi- so our final topic, like we juggled how to bring profitability to an esports league. And now I'm gonna talk about bringing equality and diversity to an esports league. Um, and so I'm going to run through some stats first. I recently wrote a research paper with a colleague in my racial bias and inequity course this past winter on the gender bias problem in competitive gaming. And of course, you're familiar because I sent you the paper and we chatted last. <laughs> so, um, and this is what you leave and breathe, you live and breathe this every day. So kind of bear with me. But um, the TLDR is the following. Gaming is big. Number one. Two, players used to be all men, but now it's around 50-50, 40-60 split, depending on the genre of game. And so this is obviously blended across platforms and genres. So on the consumer side, gaming is becoming a lot more egalitarian and 50-50. Number three, but 6% of video games feature a female lead character. Number four, on the industry side, women only make up 24% of the gaming industry. And like one of the top 14 gaming companies have more than three women in leadership positions. And number five, on the esports and competitive gaming side, only one of the top 500 earning professionals is a woman. And the women who play esports earn only, sorry, 0.05% of what male counterparts earn. And so we broke this down into a couple of ways that gender bias had spread and operated into competitive gaming into a few buckets. First, um, widespread and generally accepted belief among players that women are bad at playing games. So if a woman's good, she's cheating. Two, harassment. um, In gaming, disproportionately affects female players from microaggressions, online um, toxicity in voice chat, um, unwanted sexual advances by team members and coaches. Um, this happened to um, the founder of Method Gaming, and they had several allegations of inappropriately crossing personal boundaries. And third, the total absence of female leaders, um, except for you, uh, <laughs> thank God. Uh, if you don't see them, they must not exist, and such the bias um, perpetuates. And so we come up with all these recommendations in our paper, but I'd like to pause here and ask, what do you think is the solution to all this? And what are you guys doing in an actionable way at EG to counteract some of these forces? I, I really appreciate because I did read your paper. I got excited. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that you don't undermine the impact of like social culture in this space. You know, people will often come to me and go, what do you mean you don't have like women and men playing in the same game? And I go, you got to understand where we came from. When I came to EG, we had two rented homes in, you know, out of Illinois and out of Alameda where the players would live. Okay, well, if you're a woman, woman, you probably don't want to live with 
for other dudes. If you're a person with kids, you don't want to live in a house. If you're a person with a pet, you can't live there. Like the esports wasn't constructed with, and I don't think it was as intentional as it fortunately has manifested to be gatekept, but it wasn't structured with bringing all people along in mind. It was more like survive and just do versus think about the impact. So a lot of the things we had done, like I ended no more team houses. I like strongly don't believe in you need to live where you work. I know it's, it's actually an unpopular opinion. Some of my players are like, but I don't, how will I bond with my team if I can't live with them? And I'm like, go out for coffee like the normal human being and please develop a life. Because when they <laughs> sleep, when they drink water, when they feel good and have friends that are separate from their work environment, just like any other person, they tend to perform better. And mm. so I hate, it sounds very like professionalism 101, but those were a lot of the things we had to put into place to encourage people to apply and be a, and want to be a part of EG. Um, so the cultural nuances were huge, even like goofy stuff. Like we had to fire our, um, our old Jersey vendor because when we had jerseys made for women, so I don't know if like the crest usually is like your team crest is here and the presenting sponsor crest is here, but on a woman, where does that sit? It was like, oh. whoop, can't put that jersey there. <laughs> and finding a jersey provider that would make esports jerseys at our volume that wouldn't be like, hey, look at my boobs. Um, took some time. It was we didn't go with an endemic partner. Like so goofy things from A to Z really have to be thought of differently. Even the fact that like we were actually one of the first esports organizations to have an HR department um, and creating an outlet for opportunity was is really it just didn't exist. So we, we built from zero pretty quickly um, and are always learning because the, the finesse part that we still are always trying to optimize is you need a standard floor. But then you also have to be able to be bespoke by individuals, right? EG has non-traditional athletes besides just women. We have um, non-binary individuals. We have transgender individuals. We have furries. We have parents with kids. We have people oh, that- Oh, the Candy Crush moms. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> like oh. we, we have re- like very different, it's not a one size fit all service. And so for our, you know, 90 talent members- with a staff of 30, right? We have to be really scaled to support in high volume. And then you add the fact that they're traveling all over the world. It's a lot of work. It requires mm-hmm. a lot of intentionality and you have to be thoughtful. And we're not always going to get it right, but we're always going to try to do better. Um, especially as our athletes and players skew young. First, mm-hmm. pay, like, I feel like my, fi- my poor finance team, who I tease, they all come from big Fortune 500 companies. And they're like, why does every player ask us how a paycheck works? And I'm like, this is the business that we're in. Like, you gotta just <laughs> know day one of an athlete. They're like, what is this? Why do I have to pay Medicaid? You know, like they just, you. it starts from zero and you Dude, have this, to be open-minded. <laughs> this stuff is hard. I So in Palo Alto, my car got broken into the other day. My $3,000 Razer gaming laptop no. got stolen in Palo Alto. So everybody oh. beware. Um, I lo- G- GeForce 3070 um, RTX um, oh stolen. God. Everything that I've ever done in like my life uh. stolen. But I learned that a deductible is not what I thought it was. And I may have just really embarrassed <laughs> myself on this podcast. Did you try to write off your laptop? <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think it's really it's really relevant. I think like yeah. depending on what you what where and when you grew up, you may not have the same financial um, uh, like education and that kind of yeah. stuff. And that's really important, especially if you have young players who might be coming into a lot of money right. or more money than yes. they had before, right? But they're fourteen or fifteen and they're living in the right. hype 
LA, LA TikTok yes. hype house, right? And, and they have no uh, idea what's going on. A hundred percent. And I don't, this is like the, uh, the controversial part of diversity take. I think we also need to remember that so much of this space, what I think is an amazing underserved diversity opportunity is gaming because it's very relatively accessible the social mobility opportunity, un, like there's a reason why poor black inner city kids tend to play basketball and not polo, right? It's how do you get access to opportunity, resourcing, mentorship. Gaming can change the face of who can participate in sport, but historically, because it hasn't been a well thought out industry, it skews individuals who can afford to not have to go down a traditional work path, right? They're not, they know they don't have to support a family. They know they can go big or go home and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Or they have nothing else, right? It's like a bimodal distribution of desperation or privilege that we have to even out because it's, it shouldn't be that way. And the economic mobility and economic diversity of esports is also something I think we need to explore mm-hmm. um, and support because a lot of my job too is also convincing parents that, hey, like, this is a real business. Your kid has amazing talent. Like, one of my favorite one of my favorite player uh, recruitment stories is when I called um, Jojo Pion, who's our League of Legends superstar. I called his parents. And um, I was like, did you know, like, your son is quite literally one of the best in the world at this game? And I remember his mom going, is that what he's doing on the internet all day? <laughs> like, she had no idea her son was the fucking rock star and that exposure that awareness and breaking those barriers of like be it see it so important so yeah wow but i mean that i think i never even really thought about the um the bimodal distribution i think that's actually like really really interesting um uh in terms of like yeah because esports is potentially not lucrative so you do it whether Mm -hmm. either at the low end or the high end because everybody in the middle would be is like too rational to even pursue something as crazy as this and i'm wondering actually you know i i want to point it out but you know you're i think you're probably the first person um of color and one of the first women to lead an esports organization do you think that your leadership specifically has affected the employment roster of evil geniuses and the creators and players who want to play for your league? Probably not very intentionally, um, but I knew, like, I loved gaming. I probably have a PhD in, like, Skyrim for all the hours I spent playing slash modding that game. Like, these are things that I care about personally beyond professionally. Um, And I I saw and was exposed to esports of, like, this isn't a place for me. So it's a little bit like I'm going back to, I think it was in the 2010s, Fidelity, I believe, had like an ad where it was like, be the crazy rich uncle you wish you had. Like, I want to build the org that everyone can play and feel like they have a home because why does it not fucking exist already? Mm -hmm. And so I think that mission, I would say from the staff that work here, attracted a lot of different people because if, if you came to me straight out of college and was like, go work for this company that's in the hole and doesn't have an office. That's probably not where I'm going to cut my teeth without a, a really strong why. But mm-hmm. the more we've leaned into mission, purpose, join us in building something disruptive. Let's see where it goes. That's where I've been able to attract our amazing. I was able to poach. I'm going to brag about my people now. But I have amazing team members, like the, the previous creative director of BuzzFeed UK for gaming. I was able to convince Antonia to come here. Head of MLB Social, um, previous sales at the Islanders, like really heavy hitter 
leaders, our HRs from Citadel, like like pulling people from really big pedigree names to come and who believe in the why. I think that's how I was able to get really great people to work here, which happened to be diverse. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then, so you, so you talked about the pipeline. That's really awesome. You're able to draw them in. Um, on the retention side, I think I'd love to ask a little bit about how you regulate and maybe moderate behavior amongst players. I think one of our mm-hmm. solutions that we'd written about in our in the paper was leagues need to regulate and police behavior at a stricter cadence to to mm-hmm. um, basically insulate and protect those of like marginalized groups, whether that be economic, gender, race etc. From basically like the encroaching gamerism and the the general gaming culture Mm -hmm. that it can be really toxic and really abrasive. And so how do you build that amongst the people that that play for you guys, especially since these kids are like maybe like 14 or 15 years old where they're not at a level of maybe adult maturity, right? Yeah. So we, it starts even before they step foot in our office. We don't, so we actually screen so we do social media checks and screen mm-hmm. for people that have either broken our employee handbook or have a behavior of harassment or repeated offenses that can't be trained out. Because we also need to acknowledge we pull from global talent that some of it is needs to be taught and is often done kind of mimicky what they see on the internet without them really understanding the nuance or behavior and what that means and what that impacts. Um, and we also are really clear that this is a, and it splits the room. Like not everyone wants to play for EG because we're like, this is a job. You show up for a job, you got to behave like a job. We would never censor what you can say, but if you do these things that hurts your perception, our perception, here's the action we're going to take. Um, it's part of their handbook, part of their onboarding training, part of their twice a year sexual harassment and online behavior training, part of our all hands communications. So like repeated messaging to ensure we're very thoughtful. And it's usually when we see that someone can't change behavior because if we said no to everybody in the universe that ever made a mistake once on anything no one would work at eg right like no one would have a job because everyone's made mistakes but it's those who repeat that behavior Mm -hmm. or have bad intent that we see that's when we have to act and so infamously i've made a lot of personnel changes on staff and player and creator side because of behavior and i think even behavior behind the scenes that people don't see internal comms right? It's people love to make guesstimates of what happened here? Oh my God, this was this. And did they know as soon as it kind of fills out that scorecard, we take unilateral action because it, it we can't in good faith claim to be making a better space, but not own our own house in that area. Right. Right. I mean, I think that that's actually like, it's, it's awesome to hear a league kind of speak up to that because I think there are so many often times like where players will do bad, will execute bad behavior and, and never really be reprimanded for it. And then that actually just makes it and exacerbates the problem where they find that this is um, acceptable and they can continue and, and, and continue on and, and acting that way. But I now have like also in that same vein, kind of a tough question for you. And obviously we spoke um, on the phone about this. Sometimes our fellow females on Twitch um, don't actually make this easier for us. And they actually might perpetuate a stereotype. Um, when you have female players that come, and again, like you said, they're they're global. They might be acting a certain way. They're mimicking, right? What do you what do you do in, in a day to day to change to change potentially some of that behavior, or do you kind of screen those people out, and those people are not really like what EG is looking for? I, so I'll 
the answer tends to be the same. Everyone goes through the same kind of expectation setting. We modulate a little differently, not just even by gender, but for our creators and our athletes in this way. Our athletes mm. is you come here for your athletics. So if your motivation is intent, work ethic, expectations of how you should show up are different than a pro athlete, you're probably not going to be here for very long because you're going to be unhappy and we're going to be unhappy. And we're, we're pretty consistent in that communication and expectation setting and support. Um, on the creator side, where especially their brand and their representation is how they monetize, how they grow, um, we love self-expression. Like I love that we have hired individuals that push boundaries and share narratives. So making sure, similar to my answer before, like before they even get in the door, we're aligning of here's our vision, our mission, our values. Are you here to uphold those? And if so, let us help you run wild. Because um, I'll, I'll share like one of my, actually the, my little plushies in the background, um, Sonic Fox um, is a non-binary fighting game. Oh my God, prodigy, like just excellent across all fronts. And they are a very like sex positive figure. And sometimes people are like, was that appropriate? And it's like, we knew it coming in. They're not doing anything illegal, unlawful, or har like they're not harassing anybody. Um, and so we support them showing up as they are in their mm -hmm. truth. And we always use it as a coaching and learning moment and they continue to be excellent. And those are those stories and moments where we're never going to shame someone for being who they are, but we do have to be thoughtful and, and especially for our creators, understand like their brand and their brand perception is a lot of their value. As, as grossly transactional as that sounds, it is the, it is the truth. Um, and making sure our creators are educated on that and helping them through situations is the best we can do right now. Got it. Nicole, this has been so stunning. Um, and I want to ask you one last question before we wrap up. Um, if there's one thing that could happen in the world of esports that would make your life a lot easier, what is it and why? I wish leagues figured out media rights. Mm. Once we can get this in the hands of people consistently, once we're on a regularly understood schedule of how to watch, how to engage, a lot of the barriers to entry for new people, I think, go away. If you have never used Twitch before and you're a 30-year-old who's heard about esports on the golf course with your friends, that's not an intuitive platform. Um, it's more niche. Mm. And the more we can make watching and falling in love accessible, everything else will fall and be easier. But I can't do that by myself. I need everyone's help. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so that's definitely a big one. Um, but Nicole, this has been stunning. Thank you for sharing your journey, what Evil Geniuses is doing. It might be a little bit sneaky, but it's definitely not evil. Um, and so if anybody in the audience is interested in getting in touch with you, um, either as a player, consumer, um, how can they reach out to you or your team? Um, yes, so if you want to apply as a player... I caution you. I welcome, we welcome everyone's resume, but um, you feel free to reach out to us on our Discord and our GMs will politely tell you no thanks. No, I'm just kidding. They, are, they, will, <laughs> they will give good feedback as to why or why not. Or you should apply for one of our combines. We're one of the only esports organizations that hosts open combines for most of our titles, which means you can go from Joe to pro through EG. Um, if you have press, please reach out to press at EG. And if you want to reach out to me, reach out to me on Instagram. And I... Um, sometimes respond when I remember to reply, but I usually read everything <laughs> and I'm happy to engage and, and chat more. 
That's awesome. Okay, so on that note, uh, we'll be concluding. Big thank you, Nicole, for coming. Uh, Thank you to our listeners. I'll be back in two weeks. And so until next time, friends, feel free to hit me up at alexandratnovic.co if you ever have any questions, comments, or concerns. Would love to hear your feedback. And with that, au revoir. See you next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.